0: And we're back online. The podcast is back. We're here at the Tour Down Under for the first potty of the year, talking with the voice of cycling, Phil Liggett. It's going to be a really good one. So sit back and enjoy. this is a special guest for me um, and something I, some, someone I've been trying to get on the podcast for a long time uh, is Phil Liggett. It's a pleasure to have you on here and I'm very much looking forward to talking to you today. Welcome,
1: Phil, to Life in the Peloton. Thanks, Mitch. I should be interviewing you, really, because you're the pro, not me. Anyway, let's go.
0: Well, it's a change, because like, normally you are interviewing me, so I'm <laughs> I'm enjoying. You can be in my seat for once and <laughs> I've got the questions today and you can answer my questions. Okay. And what I wanted to talk to you about today was how I fell in love with cycling was listening to your voice. I didn't really know what cycling was when I first started watching the Tour de France, the 6.30 highlights on SBS. But who I got to listen to was you and Paul Sherwin every night. And uh, I got to know your voices without even knowing who you were. And that's how I actually fell in love with cycling. And later down the track, when I finally got to meet you, was a. It was an amazing moment. I remember with your brother. It was out here at Tour Down Under. Yeah. And we met you over in the village. And I walked away from the village going to my brother's like, that was amazing. Like just hearing you say <laughs> normal things in your voice, it just, it blew me away. So I've grown to come to know you as a friend and it's still just as special speaking to you. Um, but what I want to know is before or during you started commentating cycling, you were also commentating ski jumping. Mm. And what I find interesting about those two sports is they're very different, but in my eyes they're quite similar in a way of the aesthetics, you know, the, the, the clothing, the bright colours and... Um, and the muscle use. The muscle use. Yeah. And what
1: I want to ask you is what drew you to those two sports? Well, of course I was a cyclist, not a good one, but that's how it all started for me and my passion eventually led to my profession. Uh, the voice is something, well, like you're born with talent to race a bike as a pro. Um, I was born with a voice which I never knew I had until people start saying, hey, you don't speak like everybody else. Even where I lived on the Wirral near Liverpool, I didn't have a Scouse accent. My sister did. Don't ask me why I didn't. Because <laughs> people a mile away would say, where do you live? I said, about a mile away. <laughs> oh, but you don't speak like your sister. I Right, How are you going? You know, uh, well, that was the way it was. Um, and so... Uh, I never tried to progress because of my voice, but in fact, that's really what happened. Because, you know, I I was working with CBS television and um, basically just doing work in in Manhattan, for example. And people wouldn't see me. I'd be commentating behind the camera. And I remember walking into uh, Central Park, the, the bottom end near Harlem. And these black kids were playing ball, as they do. And uh, I just uh, said something to one of them. I said, hey, man, that voice. I said, yeah. They said, just speak to me again. We've seen you on the television or heard you on the television. I said, yeah, you probably have. Man, just say something. And <laughs> I said, well, uh, how are you? Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> and that's how it happened in America. Same happened in Australia, same happened in Britain and everywhere else. So I'm... I'm very grateful to the fact I've got the voice. And I'm very grateful <laughs> that um, it's led me to a wonderful life over all those years. Um, but as far... What happened was I... Was, it was in the early 90s, 1992. I was already known for about five or six years working on television for American TV. And the producer of the American Tour de France, a guy, a guy called David Michael, rang me up one day at home. He said, hey how would you like to do the Winter Olympics in Alberville?
0: Oh, I right, said, so it was afterwards. Yeah, it was, yeah. A- oh, it
1: was after, yeah, very much after, yeah. And then um, I said, but oh, I only know about speed skating, because Trish was a hmm. was a speed skater in the Olympics in Grenoble. And I said, I can, I've can i commentated on the World Speed Skate Championships. And they said, no, nah, no, nah, no, nah. we've got Eric Heiden for that. Well, of course, Eric did have the qualifications, <laughs> having won all five disciplines with gold and... I've ridden the tour of uh, italy as well and so i said uh, well i don't know anything else he said good he said well we thought we'd try you out on biathlon i said i know nothing about biathlon he said well it doesn't matter <laughs> he said well, learn with the american public and so i said okay so he said we'll take you to the world championships in 1991 which were in italy in Val di fiemi and so i drove there oh well that's sorry, i flew to munich drove across austria and into italy and while I was when I arrived there to start doing the biathlon, which by the way is a fantastic sport, mm. and the, the the skaters and the skiers are just like cyclists, and it is, yeah, that's, in, that's in 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 their attitude, and, yeah. in their attitude, the way they train, their application, the, and the fun, yeah. And so I got got into biathlon, and then halfway through, uh, the guy that was doing sh- uh, speed sk- uh, show we well, downhill skiing. Mm. He uh, he didn't turn up. Contract obligation with his Formula One, calling in America, so he never arrived. Yeah. So David Michael said, "Hey, we've got a problem. You're going to have to do the ski jumping as well." <laughs> I said, "David, I've had no problem with the biathlon. I know nothing about I've ski got my jumping." Just around it. He said, "Well, he said you've got to do it because the guy's not here." Okay. So, but the trouble that was being voiced in London, and I'm in Val di yeah. So in the evening, because they only jumped in the evening under floodlights, I was uh, watched it. And then I had to race to London across three countries and fly out of Munich, go to a studio in London and put the voice on that, then go back to the no. airport. Yeah, Every go, day? No, 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 only once. Oh. Then I went back to the World Championships and finished off the biathlon because the big 50-kilometre 50, 50 cross-country race is the last race of the Games. Yeah, and It's the blue ribbon. And so, so I got back and they all went to air and then they rang me up a couple of months later and they said, hey... Uh, we liked what you did with the biathlon but you're definitely better at ski jumping so Mm. we we wanted to do the ski jumping in Alberville in 92 and so I did and would you believe I won the equivalent of an Emmy well I can fool them then because they said the Herald Sun here in Sydney um, sorry the Sydney Herald voted me 5 stars for my uh, ski jumping commentaries and the New York Times did so I got the job. How do they just interrupt? Well, how, do they actually, how do they actually? Um, how do they write that? Well, you know, you know, Americans and indeed Australians are famous for. Uh, they always make a column of the best bloody um, commentators and they rip you apart because they haven't got the job. And but I was happy they gave me five gold stars, so so uh, they kept me on. I've done quite a lot of uh, Winter Olympics since, but I got really into it because I got to meet the skaters. Then I was asked to go and. Then the boys said, "Take the speed skaters out to lunch and CBS, and find out a bit more of technical aspects." So I took them all out to lunch, up in um, Steamboat Springs one day. Got them all all around the table. I said, "Okay, lads, tell me about the uh, all about your skis and what you do and the techniques." He said, "No, no, no," he said. You tell us about Greg LeMond as a bike rider. We want to know what he's really like. <laughs> uh, don't worry about it. Our sport's easy. Uh, you can come and see us ski jump any time you like. We train here. Uh, and that was what happened. I, I never spoke skiing the whole time. And uh, I made good friends with the guys. I took them on the Tour de France. They came to mm. see the races, introduced them to the bike riders. And life became uh, very pleasant. I enjoyed skiing, and I love college ski jumping, it's just like doing a time trial. They go down one by one. I do alpine skiing now. I got promoted again. But, yeah, I just... Uh, I'm very fortunate. My, my object is uh, there are, there's a lot more people with greater knowledge in all the sports, including cycling, than I have. Yeah. But, look, when you've got a, 150 million viewers on the Tour de France, uh, there's not more than a quarter of a million cyclists watching because there isn't that many cyclists watching. And so I'm saying, how are we going to keep the rest of the viewers? And so I, I'm i not going to bore him to death saying this guy broke his collarbone 15 times before he rode last weekend and he comes from wherever he comes from. But say something nice about his character, his attitude and his effort he's made to get where he's got and then they start listening. and They take an interest in the sport. By the time the Tour de France finishes, they're watching a soap. I get letters saying... You know, you haven't mentioned so and so for three days. What's happened to him? Mm. And they say you sent an email back saying well, he broke his leg, unfortunately. Oh, and they're all in tears now. They lost the star they've been following. It's a three-week family event, and I've always said if you can stop the old lady going to make the coffee before the commercials, you've you've achieved everything. And so we get great viewing figures, but it's not always for the cycling. It's for the chateau and. The,
0: and that was my next. So that was on. my yeah. next point. Was I wanted to ask you? And I think that's something some people struggle with or you meet people who can't hold a conversation. And that's you've got the art of conversation.
1: It's very important.
0: You are able to speak, and I find that with you too, you're able to speak easily to me in person Mm -hmm. and to people, and let alone on, on television for six hours on end, day after day after day. And you sort of just touched on it then you've understood what people are really looking for aside from the racing.
1: Yeah. Is that what
0: it is? Is that the trick? It
1: is. Um, a few years ago, Eddie Merckx, was who, absolutely my hero, he was the very reason I never turned professional because I got a pro contract in Belgium. Wow, Eddie, I didn't know that. Eh, yeah, yeah, and Eddie was, um, was in the same races as an amateur, along with me. And he won everything. Every time he rode, he won. And I thought, this guy's good. But anyway, I got the contract, so I made my mind up. I'm going to give it a go so I went back to England for the winter and I got a job as a journalist wasn't looking for it they offered it to me and uh, I thought God well Eddie's too good so I took the job so that was that part of the story many many years later Eddie and I became good friends I told him the story and Eddie's attitude is always "Is yes well it's normal eh? <laughs> I said but Eddie you always made it so boring you always won everything yes but the people wanted to see me win eh? mm-hmm. and that's how it went on Eddie's a personal friend well Eddie is a very very difficult interview because he'll just be like that. Straight um, up. Not, straight not, up, and no, no, ex, he would never expand. I've interviewed him all over the world. I've interviewed him in Stamford in Connecticut, and I've interviewed him here. But he was here about five or six years ago on the uh, on the stage of the Legends dinner, and he, he said, Phil, I don't want to do this. I said, well, you can't stop now, Eddie. But at the dinner, there's 2,000 people in the <laughs> room here. He said, yeah, but it's it, mine's not so good. Maybe we should speak French. I said, no, there's nobody who speaks French here. And uh, anyway, I said, just follow me, Eddie, and you'll be fine. And I got him on the stage, he got a standing ovation. It was the best interview I think I've ever done. I got inside him, he, he spoke from the heart, because he's a brilliant bike rider, but his knowledge and what he has, he spoke from the heart. And um, the crowd just loved it. I've never seen such a, such a um, response from a public. And they just clapped and clapped, and Eddie went and sat down. And um, then I slipped over to him after it was over. I said, Eddie, you were absolutely brilliant. He goes, Phil, it was not me. It was you who were brilliant. And he was just saying, again, as it is, I'd got inside him, and he was it's all in there, just got to get it out. Yeah. And it all came out on that stage in Adelaide. And um, I felt pretty chuffed with that when I'll be what,
0: honest. What do, you find there? No, what do you find when you run into someone who... One, they're not opening up, or two, they're being very... um, I've even found it doing the podcast, is that you find some people, they're thinking about what they're trying to say rather than honestly
1: speaking. That's a mistake, but you're right, a lot of people do, and especially in the world and the way the cycling sport is these days. I mean, Sky have given far too many examples of that problem. Uh, If they came out and and were, were open with the people, they'd be loved. Yeah. And whether we like it or not, they're not loved. And they are nice people on Sky, the riders are good But it's the way they run the team. I think it's very, very important that um, you say that it is. And if you get criticized, you get criticized. I got hold over the coals because I, I worked for Lance Armstrong through the years. I've, of course, uh, if you read all the Twitter, I was part of the scene. I knew everything was going on. Um, I was a close friend of Lance. Nothing was further from the truth. Yeah. I would arrive at the function and say, how are we going, Lance? OK, what we got? We'd tell him what we got. We'd go and do it on stage. he said, "I I want to get out of here as soon as it's over. And, and I had a load of cancer survivors all wanting to meet him personally. And I used to work it so he couldn't get out and he had to speak to the cancer. Now, when he did speak to the survivors, he'd just turned his microphone off. He say, "Okay, we're just going to talk you and me." And he would win those people. And this is the other side of Armstrong. Yeah, he a, wasn't that polished. No, yeah. he was a very, very nice person, and he cared about these people.
0: Yeah.
1: And then you go and read all these stories. Well, I've always believed if you're honest and you say it as it is, the people that you really want to know in life will still be behind you afterwards. And you know, what do you do is.
0: when you run into these ones who aren't giving you the honest answer, or the they're just you can tell that they're being a bit polished. And do you just let them run their course, or you try
1: a different tackle? Well, tack I always my attitude is okay. This is your answers. Then whoever's listening to this can make their own decision about yeah. you because I I don't have to make a decision myself. Yeah. But I also made mental notes that uh, maybe we won't do this again next time, or, <laughs> or I'll be very wary of you should I meet you in another situation. Yeah, I have a, a great theory in life that because I'm a I'm very involved with animals. Uh, Wild animals. But if I I never ever do business with somebody who tells me they don't like dogs, Mm. because it means it's in their character. Mm. And that usually means the character is cutthroat. You know, if you can kick a dog out of the house and leave it in the backyard, um, and you didn't want in the first place, then it usually means that's the way you are in life. So uh, I'm very careful not to work for those people.
0: Yeah, right. Mm. That's a nice. nice Yeah,
1: you've got to judge people. The world is a. cycling is a great sport full of great people I often quote I've never met a bad person in cycling but in these last 10 years well yes people have it's the arrival of social media totally um, people always want to contribute to the conversation and they don't know the facts because they're on social media
0: yeah.
1: and you know I don't know the facts about for example we're speaking at the period around Chris's room I know Chris very well and I know the other side of Chris I don't believe for one moment this guy's deliberately cheating but you read social media and the way they can go at him, I've noted that Chris doesn't make comment because he's waiting to see what happens. Exactly, until you mm. know the facts. Till you know the facts. And, uh, you know, most people on social media, that's the least they know is the facts.
0: Talking about teamwork um, in the teams, and a lot of people I don't think understand that for a sprinter to win involves a lot of teamwork. And, and right. my role right. there is producing... the presenting the sprint into the line and with a lead out and before mm. me as a guy doing yeah. the job and so on and so forth and so in the cycling team there's a lot of guys with specific roles mm. and I think in your job I see it, it's not quite as big a team uh, as far as I know but I look at you and Paul yeah. in the commentary box and just an example from what I used to know with you guys is that it's a special combination and you need to find mm. the right person that highlights attributes, and you highlight their attributes or vice versa. And and something we were talking about before was how it works in the commentary box is one guy can be off doing something mm. else and the other one is in there commentating alone. And I don't know, is that well, correct? What- yeah,
1: I mean, I used to have a wonderful next-door neighbour. She died at 91. Her knowledge of sport was brilliant. She was a near-scratch golfer. She played top tennis. And she used to say to me, but you know, feel very posh. But you know, I... I have no bloody idea with that cycling you do, because it's just a massive cyclist all riding along together. (laughs) And I said, well, then, Peggy, I'm going to have to tell you what it's all about then. So make sure you watch the show, because then you take the viewer's eyes, the non-cycling viewers. Cyclists can turn the sound off. They don't need me. The non-cycling viewers, we want them because we're not got the viewing figures without them. And... You look into that peloton, and yes, if, if you're a layman, that's what it looks like, a bunch of bike riders doing 45 k an hour. Nobody's dropping anybody. But you've got to point out that these guys, each individual riding in that race, is computing how he's going to win the race. For example, one that I remember very clearly was in the Tour de France when Eric Sarbel was celebrating his birthday and he was racing into Charleroi in Belgium. Paul and I were calling it. And we hooked up on... on the fact he probably would try to win because it was his birthday, it was a flat fin. Yeah. And from about 40k out, I took the viewer's eyes just to Zabel and explained how his team were guiding him through that pack. And I remember for two hours we talked about just Zabel and his location and how the team were doing this for him, doing that to him. The wind had just changed direction the and they put him on the other side. How And 10k to go, they guided him to this point. And heck, he won. And as he hit the line and threw his arms in there, I just said, happy birthday, Eric. And that, that, that was incredible. The people yeah. just poured the comments in. It was fabulous. And I went to bed that night thinking, that was a great commentary. Yeah. And I, I'm not being conceited because I'm only going to please myself. And I put my head on the pillow and think, that was great. I left a lot of people really happy today. Yeah. Now I love that feeling. And
0: then how does it work with you two on the teamwork side in the box?
1: Paul and I are very careful. I chose Paul yep. um, because he was, a, he was a rider and during his seven years of riding in the Tour de France he was 10 years a pro. Uh, we weren't friends uh, because it was 12 years difference in our age when he was cycling because I, I was already working. But when he came to Europe um, we made, I was reporting him so we, we got close. And then I read in the paper, not from Paul, he was retiring, but he was going to race in Britain for two years and then stop. I asked him at the end of a stage of Paris-Nice on the Promenade des Anglais, with a half stage still to come up the mountain, I said, are you packing in? He says, well, yeah, I am. But I can't tell you what Paris-Nice, you already knew. Yeah, the Paris-Nice, the the end of his last season in France was 86. Yeah, right. And so I said, well, have you ever thought of uh, working with me on television? If I can do it, I said, cause I wasn't in control then. And he said, uh, No, so would you be interested? Because he's got a good personality and we lived close together, same humour. He said, Yeah, I'll give it a go. Okay, so well, I'm not offering the job because I haven't got a job to offer, but I'll think about it. You just, it, you just knew because of his personality that he would work we, well together. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, same sense of humour, we used to have uh, quite a few jokes together. And so he, um, the, if the following year, the Tour de France uh, was uh, going to be on TV every day, live. And the guy on Channel 4 uh, came to me and said, um, that guy you mentioned, I said, yeah, Paul Sherwin. He said, you're going to need help. See, if he, see if he wants the job. Mm. So I went and said, do you want to do it? I said, in which case, because he was going to sign for Rally, but he wouldn't tell me the sponsor. I said, whoever you're signing for, put a clause in the contract, no work in July rally rang me up to say hey what have you told paul Schoen to put this clause in his contact for i said well i want him to work with me on the tv thinking of the future I said but don't worry will there be no problem if he wants to wear a rally logo on his uh, on his uh, presenter's jersey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so they said, oh okay so paul became um became a commentator wearing his rally top and every day between stages he rode the course Because he had to stay fit, because he's back in the action as soon as the tour finished. Then the TV sort of thought, that's just great. Okay, well, if he's going to ride the other races like the Tour of Britain, etc., we'll mic him up in the race." And (sighs) and so he was commentating on the race. This was the the first mic up. This is years ago. Now they're trying to do it it now. This is the first time, and uh, this was 80, 86 or 87. Yeah. And in the two years he was a pro in Britain, he won the Crick Championship the first time and then the Road Race Championship the second time, and he never defended his title because he retired, as he said he would, uh, that year. So he retired Did he actually
0: commentate in some of the races? Oh,
1: he did. Oh, God, Or was yeah. it just well, a recording I felt sorry for him. And no, no, re- we were live. Huh. We he did the Tour of Britain, and I'll tell you, after four weeks on the Tour and just doing bits and pieces uh, riding his bikes. He He wasn't in shape. He he was launched into a major race, because Panasonic were riding, people like Alan Piper were riding, Phil Anderson, (laughs) and poor old Paul Sherwin on his Rally Banana team, as it was called (laughs) in those days. um, We used to cut in, and he could hardly speak, because they they weren't taking any prisoners, and and he would ride 200-kilometre stages. So anyway, uh, he passed the test, and he never, ever... And the big reason Paul got all of his pro rides was because his, his morale was fantastic. And whenever his tea And he spoke fluent French. He learned it because he only lived with the French cyclists. Mm-hmm. And because the, the, when they rode the tours, Paul was never going to win the Tour de France, but there was always a chance. He got up to fifth overall on one occasion. Wow. And he came close to winning stages. He finished fifth on Champs-Élysées. Eh? But he was never going to be a great pro, but he meant mentally... He kept these guys alive yeah he was always having a joke of them the the, the um the, the director sportif would always if he had a sick not a sick rider but a rider's morality at the rock bottom he'd put paul in the room with him mm. uh, to bring him back up to scratch and paul being we're liverpoolians let's face it and we we're different um we have good bike riders great sports people and an incredible attitude and uh, paul would get in that room and say hey, what's up with you and the kid would say, oh, he said, three days now I've had this problem. So what? He says, it's a bloody bike race, Just get out there and enjoy it, and you'll come good. I'll be right behind you. <laughs> and he'd bring the kids back up, you see. So that's why Paul kept his pro contracts.
2: Yeah, well, uh, he won the odd
1: race, but he wasn't a big winner. But a So Paul came eventually full on to the commentary with me, and now here we are nearly 40 years down the line, and we are officially the longest... A commentating duo together in any sport.
0: Is that right? Yeah.
1: Uh, we, we, you know, we've been to the Press Association to speak uh, today and, uh, and we mentioned it to them. We've got a standing ovation. That's amazing. But it's, it's only doing what comes natural, and that's the most important. You, you race a bike and you win races because you can. Yeah. And you tend to forget the millions of people who can't. I think everybody can commentate. I don't, but then they can't.
0: They can't, no, they can't. I have a
1: photographic mind for a start. Uh, I can look at the television, see a picture, and the words drop into place. Like I, I remember saying once when they were over the cobblestones in the Paris Bay for CBS in America, and I just said, well, the 25 leaders have hit the front now, and now they're on a roller coaster of pain. Just because we are going up and down on the cobbles, it seemed the obvious thing to say. Yeah. The dancing on the pedals and all the other phrases that have popped out at the time. People think I go to the television with a long list of phrases and just choose the ones that. No, fit. it just comes to mind. I don't even know I've said half of them.
0: Speaking of that, now I've I've got some clips that are some of my favourite growing up,
1: <laughs> yeah. And
0: I want to show you them and then just get your your comments on these afterwards. So, um, the first one I've got here. Mm-hmm is the look.
1: Yes, Alpe d'Huez.
0: Alpe d'Huez, 2001, Lance Armstrong gives a look to Ulrich. And I'll just play it here. Brace
2: alone and Armstrong's gone. A big move by Lance and he's no reply coming at all from Jan Ulrich. Ulrich has got no answer to this acceleration by Lance Armstrong. So Armstrong has been holding everything under those legs till the last climb, and now he has launched the attack. He wants to win it out to us. We knew that. We were just not too sure he had it in him. He has. He will thank Rubiera, who has completely sacrificed himself. He took a look straight into the eyes there of Jan Ulrich and said, well, here I go. Are you coming or not? And the answer is not.
1: <laughs> but you see, it was the picture. It's... I saw him do it, and I said, well, I saw it. It's as simple as that. But sometimes you don't actually see what you say. But um, he he invited Ulrich to come and join him, and he couldn't. And Jan, they became personal friends in the long term, but at the time they were great rivals. And, uh, and Lance just took a big stare.
0: It was just, I enjoyed, that was the era that I was growing up as a young guy and looking up... But and I enjoyed that battle. I was I was a, an
1: Ulrich fan. But what you're doing is you, you're developing two personalities straight away. I'm not saying to the fans that he's on 32-26 as he spins away because do you think the lady going for the tea cares? No. Uh, much better to say that and bring the viewers in saying, look at this guy. God, he's beat him. He's not going to react. You know, they're th- part of the picture now. The next one I've got is... Um
0: bit further forward 2007 yeah. and we haven't got the whole clip here and I think it's okay. better if we could see the last 15k but it would take too <laughs> long to play but it's when Robbie McEwen crashes I think about 10k to go sprinting oh, into, into Canterbury yeah,
1: yeah in and London. he gets oh, back this to the was front a sensational and I've got situation.
0: the last 20 seconds here which captures the, okay. the peak moment
2: Robbie McEwen is coming McEwen the acceleration on the middle of the picture the man off the back is going to win Robbie McEwen the man from
1: nowhere welcome home unbelievable I don't gosh know. I wonder if Robbie's oh, kept that
2: does that,
1: That's a that was a magic piece of commentary and we were lucky don't forget because it was 20k out he had the flat yeah. tyre uh, and fortunately the cameras picked him up because sometimes 20k out they might all be away but our cameras, I have to say, they're English cameras too. And so the, the cameras were behind. Tour de France racing down to Canterbury. Massive, massive crowd. Couldn't even recognize the towns they passed through. And I lived there because there were too many people. Yeah. And uh, Robbie had this puncture. And he, 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 I've spoken to Robbie many times about this. He thought he lost his stage right then and there because his team uh, didn't even know about it. And nobody held him. He got back into the peloton. He got to the back and the adrenaline must have been pouring and he just got round the outside and he, he was only back into a winning position as he saw the line and he still kept coming it was the most incredible uh, piece of cycling I remember talking to a couple of Aussie journalists including John Tavoro. those guys were so high they, I don't think they went to bed that night <laughs> Yeah, they 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 were just so uh, adrenaline rushing through the system it it was a brilliant piece of cycling and, and i've always liked robbie sprinting he's always been an exciting sprinter i talk about him as harry potter because he takes off the invisibility cloak as he comes to the line and there he is and that was a perfect that's that that a, a perfect example yeah. even
0: watching that right then mm. he was already i was thinking about it for myself if i was trying to lead a sprinter out and mm. i would be thinking well we've buggered that up it's 150 minutes to go, and yeah. my sprinter Robbie is 12, 15 wheels yeah. back. And I'm watching that. I just don't know how he can move that far forward. <laughs> Why everyone is sprinting?
1: Max. He's an impressive. sprinter. It was just.
0: It was unbelievable.
1: I loved him. He, that was uh, for me. That was the finest one of his 12 victories. That yeah, was that was the one so. that was worth 10 wins.
2: Yeah.
0: And this also. This was just. An amazing moment. Armstrong, Yoshiba Balocky crashes where yeah. there were a lot of slippery hot roads and Armstrong decides to take a shortcut through the paddock here. And I think...
1: No, I haven't seen this. Uh, I was Mitch, watching this. I did it on two television networks at the same time. and I, um, Slightly complicated. But on one of them, I predicted the fall. Maybe it was this one. I was, it was difficult to find one with your commentary. Oh, yes, yeah. because that's, Paul was doing it. Yeah, right. We were on two different channels. That was it. It wasn't two, wasn't it? It was two different channels. I was speaking to other people. I think I was speaking to the English, and Paul was speaking to America, which would mean you would probably hear him here. What but here, right my commentary, just before the fall, I predicted the road surface could I cause think a think crash. You, let's have a listen.
2: That was a rather dodgy corner there. (laughs) But still, he's trying to pull out the the little seconds which could make the big difference here. Oh, and look, oh! Bellocchi's gone down, and Armstrong is taken to the grass. This, oh, I hope Bellocchi is not hurt. That was an awful crash. Armstrong has gone. uh, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Armstrong is now crossing the course. I have never seen that in my life, as Lance Armstrong is back in the group. Well, what about Yoshiba Bulaki? No sooner was I telling you about the road service becoming absolutely treacherous than on that loose tar, down went Yoshiba Bulaki. Now, if we are hearing that Vinokurov may also have crashed. We are waiting for confirmation of that.
1: I don't think he did. He won the stage, but still. That was down into Gap. Um... I felt sorry for Blocky, that probably was his own fault, he was taking chances to get rid of Lance. Lance uh, said when he took to that field, I spoke to him about it some time afterwards, privately, he had no idea there was a ditch at the other side of the field that was going to cause him a huge problem, because he could have gone down that ditch and, and finished up across the road. And, of course, if the race regulations had been applied, he would have been disqualified, because he... Took he a came short off the route, took a shortcut. Is that right? Uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't be a brave, would be a brave commentator that ever applied that. I, I agree, uh, but he could have so easily have been at the end of Armstrong's race there, right there.
0: Well, speaking of amazing bits of commentary, now I heard this story, and I don't know if it's true. You can tell me, but my brother told me about one time you were com- commentating Mick Malloy walking down <laughs> some stairs. That was at the Winter Olympics, right? Yeah, and. The Mick's a funny guy. The, f- the point of that is... I'd never heard of him. <laughs> mm. You can make, I think, anything sound <laughs>
1: interesting, <laughs> and he was simply walking downstairs, and I, I've only heard the story and... No, it was in Whistler. In Whistler, the tw- was 2010. It? Do you tell uh, the story? Uh, tw- it was in the 2010 um, Winter Olympics in Whistler, and uh, I worked for the Aussies, and Mick Look- Molloy was there to do little sides. And somebody uh, said, Mick wants to do a piece with you. I said, who's Mick? And then we got over that hurdle. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, he wants you to commentate on him. I said, oh, okay. What's he doing? He said, no, he's not doing a lot. But he said, just go out with him. So I went out with him. And I just commentated him. Yep. Talked about his style, walking down the steps, wobbling a bit, you know. He could straighten his left leg a bit. And and he used to make, used to throw out comments back to me. uh, Funny comments. And then, then he went into the loo, the one of these porter loos. And so I knocked on the door. I said, are "You in there, Mick?" He says, "Now, mate." He said "You're starting to give me the shits now." <laughs> I said, "Well, one of us, but it's not me. I'm outside." <laughs> and then we started like that. Then he went and he ordered a hamburger and chips. And he's really a bit overweight. And he's stuffing those chips into. Him. I said, "Look at that, as if he needed food. Look at the speed those chips are going, down. <laughs> and and look at the size of the bite out of that hamburger. And they, they used every word." Then he. Then he, um, he started to read a newspaper and I said, just look how he's studying that paper. You think he had the intelligence to read it? And, and it went on. And then his last, the last shot was, uh, he, he went out to the highway, he got into the car and he just shouted out the window. He said, I'm no interest in you, you really give me the shit, man. And he just drove off. And that was the end of the, the sketch. Uh, and it went out and it got rave reviews. It was just a funny thing about the Winter Olympics um, and from that point of view Mick and I sort of became friends because he works on the radio network mm. over in Melbourne and so we often do a two and a fro. Um, very funny man. As I now know but I didn't know then. I'd never heard of Mick Malloy at the time.
0: Well, what I would want i want to try and get you to do if, if you don't mind <laughs> is just a simple I'm not going to be as funny as Mick and I won't make any <laughs> comments but just to prove that point, I want to do something sim- simple in here. Whether it is, I don't know. What have we got in here? Maybe I could just be making that side of the bed over there. Oh, okay. And then you can just comment commentate me mm-hmm. and see if you can do see what see what you think. Let's just have a look. Um, let me just try and get this video
1: going. Then what are you going to do, sit there?
0: I'll go over there. Maybe okay. you, can, you can hold this mic if you want. That's the side there that records. Or you can just sit there and maybe
1: sit here. All right, moving round. We're in a hotel room, everybody. And Mitch Docker is now trying to work out a telephone, which is going to be a problem to start with. He's now... You've got to see this guy. He's got multicoloured pants on, clearly done by Nike. He's about to climb into my bed. <laughs> uh <laughs> He's in his new colours, fitting colours, they're pink. Calls himself a man, and very he's nice. straightening the bed very nicely, thank him. It's better than the maid did that. And he's got that lovely little line down his, just above his ear there, too, so we can see he's got ears. And his hair's very roughly combed, if it's combed at all, smoothing the pillow down, like a man with passion for making beds, really. Oh, he's put the remote control on the side of the bed, well, Trish has seen you all before. I think she'd be impressed with this man now. What a fine figure of man! You can tell he's a cyclist. His arms are brown. We can't see the lines, and he's, he's doing the twelve. A lovely twelve, <laughs> absolutely. If he could sprint as fast as he twelves, he'd probably win a stage of the Tour Down Under. But that's unlikely.
0: Brilliant. <laughs> that was that was
1: brilliant. That's it, Thanks. Um, Thanks. <laughs> I did do one in the Rio Olympic Games in South America, to Rio. And I was on Copacabana Beach before the Olympics began. And, you know, all the Brazilians play basketball, netball and football on the beaches. That's what they do all day long. That's why the best footballers come out of Brazil, etc. And so I was just going down there because I was going to a a media function for uh, Channel 7. I was walking along the seafront to get to the function and this camera crew came up. And there were Channel 7 news crew. Now, the news crew are very different animals to sports crew. And so this guy just came and said, Phil, I said, hello. He said, I'm from Channel 7. I said, oh, that makes two of us. He said, um, the guys in the office tell me you can commentate on anything. I said, well, I'm, I suppose, I'm not sure. He said, well, have a look. At, you see these girls playing netball and the guys playing football. Why not give us a commentary? So I started with the football and this little kid was really magic. So I started commentating on the way he was driven around this guy. And blow me, he scored a goal. And it was a good straight kick. So I did that. And then I switched, of course, to these very scantily clad and really good looking Brazilian women playing uh, volleyball on the beach. And um, I said, Well, this is really interesting now. I, and I said, the, the, But the trouble is, they're very scantily clad. In fact, they've got virtually nothing on whatsoever. <laughs> and. Uh, I have difficulty recognising people when they don't pin a number on. Uh, and they—they uh, they actually sent the tape to the lawyers to get it cleared. Yeah. But it went on air. Yeah, right. Word for word, it went out on Channel Seven. Yeah. Oh, brilliant! Well,
0: Phil, I could actually talk. I've got an, a million other <laughs> questions. I don't want to. Well, we've got a busy schedule here, but thank you. Well, you, you, you very have.
1: Much. I'm just. I'm just uh, passing time for a week.
0: <laughs> Looking forward to commentating me coming into yep. coming into the final stage tomorrow, or the first uh, stage. Uh,
1: yeah, why not? Yeah. Why not? Are you, I what, think Caleb Ewan could have done with you back on the team last night because he just fell short there. Yeah, I think he went a little early. He did. He did, and because that's a nasty finish. It yeah. rises up to the line. Well, it's He's, so quick down. His leg wasn't and that was pumping.
0: Something mm. I was telling you before is it was so easy in the bunch, but so hard on the front, and it was yeah. difficult to get your timing there. Yeah. One thing I want to ask you... Um, Something I struggle with at the start of the year is I mostly know the riders from riding against them. Mm. But I struggle always for the first few months recognising, oh, right, that's you, you know, and I, yeah. I cut him off and I'm like, who's this bloody Katusha guy? I'm like, oh, that's Hassie. Sorry, mate, in your car." Exactly.
1: So how do yeah. you get used to all the new riders? Well, I was in Melbourne the other week, uh, well, I was in Ballarat for the Nationals, and uh, Nathan Hass went past me in his new Katusha kit and he was in his time trial style on his time trial bike because he doesn't normally ride time trials and he rode past me at fairly high speed I was only doing about 20k an hour. I thought oh, who's, what the hell is Katusha doing here mm. uh, for the Nationals of Australia so I'd forgotten he changed teams I went back home and I checked the Katusha team and thought it's Nathan Pass he's the only Aussie on there currently I said the bugger. He never even come. He never even said hello to me when he rode past me. So the next day I went and found him. I said, "Hey, Nathan. The next time you pass me on the bike, say at least hello. say hello." Yeah. But you did look as though you were going quite well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What? what yeah, are the tricks? It's very hard. Um, Try like you're in the box. What
1: I always just do, like, <clears throat> oh, I don't know. Um, for example, when we did the People's Choice Classic before we went on air, I looked at every team and listed the, the sprinters on in the oh, race, yeah, and I idea. came up with about twelve guys who could win the race. Yeah and put the names down with their teams. Because all teams have altered the colours, some subtly, some wholesalely. Uh, and, uh, you know, yours, yours is the best team now. Yeah, isn't because, it? Oh, well, now you're in the pink, I can spot you every time. And BMC are brilliant as well. But when you start mixing up with some of the black and white teams or or the blue teams, now we've got Movistar, gone more like Manchester City, <laughs> some like Newcastle United, I'm, oh, God... And a lighter shade of blue for quick step. It's very difficult, uh, and you know, in these days of sunglasses, crash helmets, and you can't see them, you wow. don't know where they are. Um, so you've got to go for styles. You've got to find the guy that might have bought himself a, a pair of yellow spews. That's always a good, a good uh, thing. Or um, we got two guys dressed in red in the breakaway, Manuel Abuaro and uh, and Beppy Fumi Bepi, Bepu Beppu. Yeah. Uh, the only difference between the two of them, one had a gold helmet on and one had a, a white helmet and that was the only way I could stay with it because from a distance, don't forget our, T, our TV screen is not 56 centimetres in a lovely darkened room, it's uh, it's about 13 centimetres and it's inside uh, in the sunlight quite often and you can't, I'm staring at the screen, I can't even see how many riders in the place so
0: I didn't even understand how you do that, I'm at home sometimes and I'm in the races with these guys and I'm... I think that's him, but I don't really know. Yet you're <laughs> calling them like that. Is it well, just little we're watching style?
1: very, we're very concentrated. And Paul, of course, is alongside me and, and on the tour down there. We've got Robbie as well. I have to say, Robbie's very, very good. Yeah. And, and he knows the riders. He's not far away from the sport either um, as a bike rider. So between the three of us, I think we get the, hit the right spot most times. But we oh. all make mistakes and we're all human. Yeah. Uh, but as long as we don't take away the excitement i can put up with the letters saying about time you gave up if you can't recognize him but as long as the people watching them had a good race call i don't care if they say that
0: no no oh all
1: great I, I i i'm human uh, oddly enough are you sometimes people don't think so where i am <laughs> Bill, thank you very mitch. much thank you mitch thanks for coming over absolutely brilliant yeah he's got you out of training anyway hasn't it? that's good a massage, I'm up next for massage, I can't wait. Oh my yeah. god. Well Trish is a masseuse, she's done five tours to France as a masseuse. I you know, all these stories about other people being the first woman to work on the tour teams, it was Trish.
0: Yeah, right. She was
1: on the first pro team back in England. Carlton Wyman. Right. Yeah. It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago yeah, it was about a hundred years. True. Loosely speaking. We didn't want it to. Mm-hmm. <laughs>